Hello there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are discussing episode 13 of Scene by Scene, which starts at minute 23, second 46, and ends at minute 27, second 31. For those of you listening at home, it corresponds to chapter 7 of the DVD. And this scene starts with a montage of Harvey Picar stories and ends with a montage of Harvey Picar comics and then a little documentary moment with the real harvey p car yeah there's a lot going on it's 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 real juicy here juicy and delicious <laughs> so the scene as you said starts with a montage and it's of harvey writing comic scripts while living life and making observations moments derived from early issues of american splendor the comic book as well as made up scenarios what uh, that's right but this that's against well, this is real life <laughs> Well, it's the verisimilitude of real life. So, uh, there are a lot of cool moments where Picar, portrayed by Paul Giamatti, are... Wait, he's still... Okay, so yeah, he's still being played by Paul Giamatti. That's right, okay. the entire time. Okay. I like to say that every episode... <laughs> I noticed that. To give our But our no, it's Paul, important, because there are other Harvey Picars. That's true. Yeah. So, in this case, like, again, there's these little moments where Giamatti, portraying Harvey, is doing something, and suddenly... It's frozen into like a comic book version yes. of this. So like he'll be doing something, but we don't know what he's thinking. And then it freezes, turns into a comic book drawing. And then you get the thought bubble, the thought right. process of what he's thinking or what, what's going on, actually giving it more context. And all of those panels are actually made up for the movie. It, and are correct. were done by Gary Lieb's partner, Doug Allen. So yeah, so they basically are, are created for the movie. And uh, you get inside Picar's mind, these little quips and philosophical bon mots. And then also while... Bon this... Oh, is that how you say it? Yeah. No, oh, thanks. And um, while uh, this is happening, there's a really cool song playing called Ain't That Peculiar. By Marvin Gaye. By Marvin Gaye. It's playing over the montage. And the thing is, I can't tell... So I can't tell if Ain't That Peculiar, the Marvin Gaye song playing over this montage was meant to celebrate Picard's newfound expression or criticize it <laughs> in some kind of odd way. You know, like, ain't that peculiar? Is it peculiar that he's, you know, creating comic books about his life because a lot of people weren't back then? Yeah, I feel like there's probably, like, some background to that song that we just don't know about, maybe that connects it. I'm and not... is that the first pop song in the, in the uh, movie that's shown up 23 minutes be. in? I mean, it's, I, it's an R&B hit. I don't know if you would qualify it as a pop song right but yeah it might be the first non-jazz song right so and i thought that was an interesting choice so at some point through this montage picar looks in the mirror and the comic book version relates ain't that a reliable disappointment which again is very funny for the hero of your own comic yes to be constantly criticizing and downplaying yourself uh, yes you know the kind of like the tormented loser very much in the sort of neurotic Jewish tradition of like the Woody Allens right. and, and totally. all those Borscht Belt comedians and stuff. Right, right. Well, that makes sense, actually, because, you know, you're laughing at yourself kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Harvey hears two men talking outside his window and sees them moving a mattress to a garbage dump. 
And uh, one guy is talking about a woman he's dating, and the other guy asks if she's smart. And he says, oh, she's average. And the other guy says, average is dumb. This piques Picard's interest, and the scene transitions into the cover of a comic book. In this case, in the cinematic version, it's American Splendor number one. And on that cover, it isolates that very same conversation in a single image. And in fact, this scene was the basis for a story in American Splendor number two. But we'll get to the, the fact checking in a moment. Yeah. And another factual thing is that the people who drew the first issue of American Splendor, mostly, most of the stories were by Gary Dumb and Greg Budget, who would go on to draw a lot of the early issues of American Splendor. We don't get to meet these characters, not that I know of. I don't think there's any like background characters or anything like that, you know, in the movie. But we don't get to meet his first artist. Besides you mean his Crump. actual other artists, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, meanwhile, the camera pulls back from the comic book in that we've just seen, this American Splendor number one, into the lunchroom of the VA hospital that Harvey works at. And we see a bunch of his co-workers looking at the comic and passing it around. This is the first time, I believe, that we see Toby Radloff portrayed by Judah Friedlander, who is a comedian and went on to act in NBC's 30 Rock, created by Tina Fey. One of the co-workers asks if Harvey drew the comic, too, and Harvey says, no, I just write the stories, while insisting that they're all true. Yeah. So, yeah, just to give a rundown of those folks who are sitting there at the uh, employee cafeteria with Harvey as he unveils... American Splendor number one is there's two guys sitting at the table. One is a doctor who's played by Charles Eduardos. And the other guy is an older guy wearing a hat with all sorts of pins in it. And he's ID'd in the script as a World War II veteran patient. And since this is a VA hospital, we actually, maybe for the first and only time, see one of the actual veterans who's a patient at that hospital. And he's played by an actor named Dick Prochaska or Prochaska. And uh, neither of those guys really did much acting other than being in this movie and this scene. And then standing around, also during the unveiling of American Splendor Number 1, is a nurse who's pushing the VA guy in his wheelchair and two maintenance guys. And none of those people are credited, I guess maybe because they don't have any lines in the film so they probably were just extras and then of course there's toby and then someone else walks into the scene and then uh mr boats reappears a guy that we met earlier on in the movie yeah a co-worker and he looks at the comic and uh, declares it's not bad you done good and Which is about, you get the sense, it's probably the best compliment that he would ever be capable of giving. That's right. And this seems to please Harvey greatly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Crumb, he's getting more confirmation yes. from the people he respects. The scene continues as Mr. Boats talks about uh, the hard work of Chinese ballerinas uh, as everyone leaves the lunchroom. Yeah, he starts like he starts to- going into total dad mode and That's just right. like turning it about something he's interested in. Well, he takes a compliment about, that he gives to Harvey right. and then kind of diminishes it a little exactly. bit by saying, well, you know, it's actually harder to be a Chinese ballerina. Right. Which, right. of course, Harvey's never going to be. So right. what, that's ridiculous. And has no relation to any interest that anybody there has. Or this, con- yeah. And so Boats. so the, the room empties out, except for Harvey, who continues to listen and observe. This is what he does. As Mr. Boats, you know, philosophizes about the human condition, And he goes on this little kind of beautiful tirade where he goes, where are all you sick men rushing off to? 
You ain't going nowhere for now. Probably not for a long time. And then the cinematic version of Mr. Boats turns into a comic book panel, you know, again, through Harvey's eyes. And he finishes his thought by saying, but damn, if they'll not, if they'll not be rushing off to get there. Once again, this visualizes Picard's creative process. And it becomes the cover for quote unquote American so, Splendor number two. That's right. He's basically he's turning real life into comic books. And that image turns into the cover for uh, American Splendor number two. And then suddenly other covers appear denoting a passage of time. Yeah. That he's been creating these comics. So you see the covers to issues number four, five, six, and seven. And then suddenly back to American Splendor number three. Right. And kind of like ratchet it back to a moment. And uh, then we cut to the real Harvey Picar, which we haven't seen in a little while, mm-hmm. being interviewed by the filmmakers, asking, what do people think about you putting them in their bo- in your books? And Harvey says, they love it. They, they want to know when they're going to be in the next one. And then the filmmaker asks if Harvey listens all the time. He says, I listen. I fall asleep sometimes, too, mm-hmm. which is a kind of funny moment. I think we were previously in the green room talking about like maybe he didn't like that question or something and so he didn't have much of an answer but it's still yeah, a I funny like answer the question that he's been asked so many times both of those questions mm-hmm. and he seemed kind of like a little bit annoyed with having to answer them and mm-hmm. it felt like a kind of impromptu moment too like the director was not mic'd up and it was it was bad sound quality right it almost felt like they it was some moment that they captured on set that they didn't really intend you know necessarily sure wasn't in the script or something right but it was it was very revelatory and there was something aggressive about the way harvey said like yeah they love it you know they love being in my in my comics as if there's no other possible answer like i don't even want to think about whether it it doesn't really matter whether people like it or not it's just something he is going to do and it's his form of expression and the the issues of whether he's pleasing people or displeasing people is is not really relevant to him you and know. and I I think you and I have both had to face this with our own semi-autobiographical comics. Mm-hmm. You know, like p- people we portray that are real life in, in our lives. Yeah. And how they perceive that. I know I've gotten in trouble mm-hmm. for some of the things I've written yeah, and Yeah, me too. I, I hurt the feelings of some family members of mine pretty, pretty intensely for a while when mm. I did this one story about uh, my grandmother's death. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. But um, well, going back to Picard, yeah. though, like what's interesting is in the previous scene... You know, he's his whole mantra, his whole speech is about wanting to be authentic and real and mm-hmm. capturing the common man and all that stuff. And then in this case, I want to talk a little bit about the guys that are lifting the mattress into the garbage. Yeah. Because there are many iterations of that. Not only there's the movie iteration. Right. There's also the comic book iteration. And then there's the cover. Right. And there's also in the in the script for the film, it was done differently and had a different context as well. Oh, it did. Yeah. Okay. So in the original script... Harvey, last scene when he was when he was in that fever dream of of writing comics that before he showed it to Crumb, right? That scene ended with him as he was finishing writing and like stacking his scripts together, looking out the window because there were some garbage men coming by, and there were two garbage men who were throwing a mattress into the back of a sanitation truck, and they had that same exchange, and that was like kind of the the capper for you know the the implication was that harvey then wrote that one down and showed it to crumb as well but they never filmed that 
or if they did, they didn't put it in that scene. Instead, they stuck it in this montage right. um, and made it like two guys who just happen to live next door, right. I guess, two friends throwing away an old mattress. Um, and that scene is, there is never a mattress scene with two guys in any of Harvey Picard's comics, but right. in the actual American Splendor number two, there's a scene of two guys walking down the street having that well, conversation. Well, I think that's one of them is Harvey. I guess Harvey. one is Harvey. Yeah. And, and the he's other one... the one that's declaring Average, hey man, Average is dumb. Yeah. You know, and then also in the comic book version, like you said, they're, I don't even think they're throwing out a mattress. They're bringing up a mattress. Well, they're bringing up a rug for a friend of theirs, like oh, okay. collecting a rug from someone else. And it ends up being like this just MacGuffin for a extended scene of, of Harvey and two of his friends sort of having just like a wide ranging conversation, but right. they never actually say anything about dating a woman or average is dumb or anything like that. And Harvey actually in the DVD commentary admits that he just made that line up entirely, mm -hmm. which of course undercuts like everything, all this thing about authenticity and, and him right. using his real life. Like it just was a line that he really liked. He right. came up with it and he put it in the mouth of, of one of his characters and now it's taken on this whole other multiple different dimensions right right and it does make you wonder how much of the comic is made up over the years yeah you know so, i mean it uh, yeah so i guess my question to you is does this does this harm or or like in any way diminish harvey's credibility to you as a creator i mean i i know okay. i shouldn't be asking you that because you already freely admit to using the techniques of creative nonfiction to yes. to augment things that, so that have I, actually I, happened. I think that, it, again, I think the reason why I call my comics that I that are more autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, is because yes. it is massaging, you know, the truth from fiction in some way. Sometimes you're collapsing right. things for time purposes, or you might give someone else a piece of dialogue to move the story along, sure. because, you know, life is complicated and weird. And, and if you're always trying to get it, you know, exactly the way it happened, that's maybe not always as interesting yeah. in, in conveying it, you know? So I give them the, the poetic license and freedom, you know, to conflate and or uh, create, condense mm -hmm. an idea into a sentence that maybe wasn't actually said, but conveys the, the thematic qualities of something that he observed, you know? Right. Like we, I think we've talked about this, like factual truth versus emotional truth. Right. And to me, I'm more interested in emotional truth. Yeah, me too. Um, and that's, you know, it's come up in my own work as well. Like with AD, my book on Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. they were, I remember when I was talking to the um, reviewer for the New York Times about the piece, I admitted that I had restructured some scenes or moved some things around mm -hmm. but not not actually the like time events but more like using segues and bridges between different scenes sure. and stuff and so they ended up calling the book uh, a work of fiction which really no, bothered me that's wrong and was something i was really upset about and i called the the writer and i was like look i really want you to change that because I mean, everybody has to do some editing and condensing of real life things. It's what you do as a writer, you know, or in an interview or whatever. Um, it's really important for people to know that these people are real, that these events really happened to them. And this book is non is essentially nonfiction, you know, as right. much as comics can do it. And he refused to change it and said, well, I'm, you know, sorry, I respect that, but I, I'm going to stand by what I wrote. And it's it was really unfortunate because it was when the book first came out and I was worried that it would affect its credibility. You right. know? But fortunately, it never really. Right. That's not, never been an issue since then. Right. But um, so I do remember just as a side note. Yeah. When it was uh, when A.D. New Orleans after the deluge was a webcomic. 
mm-hmm. I do remember that one of the people you were portraying had a line of dialogue that I had issue with. Yes. Because I thought it was actually you wrote something about it on the comments. The drama. Right. To, to dramatize it, to right. fictionalize it, you know, to make it more sensational. Yeah. And then I called you out on that. Right. And then the person who actually said it said, Denise. no, I did say that. Yeah. And I thought that was very funny. And so. then you guys had a debate about whether, even if it was true, it felt would you like say that? too true. It felt like <laughs> it was that, pushing. Yeah. But given all that and given our own compromises, as we say, as artists to mm-hmm. make some of these same choices, I do have a little trouble with if Harvey literally just made that line up and mm-hmm. put it in his mouth and created the scene that does mm-hmm. bother me a little bit. What I'd like to think is that maybe somewhere in the back of his mind someone did say that and it kind of stuck in his brain and then he utilized it well, I mean, rather was, than him just totally making it up. But I'll give you your out because on the cover I believe that's supposed to be Harvey mm-hmm. and he's saying it. Well, that's true. So there's your out. So maybe he, he wrote it and had it drawn and then he went out and he said it. He enacted it afterwards. Oh, he had to go actually say (laughs) it in front of somebody. So that way it was like it it actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that that's the weird thing, even though this is only the second issue of American Splendor. Yeah. Like, you know, it starts to take a life of its own, you know? Yeah. And and he is becoming the hero of his own comic. And maybe there is this blurry line between things that really happen and then how you convey it or express it. Yeah. And keeping with the the realm of possibility right so i don't know i i give him a pass i also like i you know like we just discussed i think sometimes you have to do you have to edit around corners mm-hmm. or get to the root of something sometimes and maybe if you come up with a pithy line that you maybe not have said at the moment yeah you know i think it's fair well that actually that pithy line actually segues perfectly into what else i wanted to say which is as much as I enjoy this, these scenes in the movie, and I think they really start to capture like that energy of of creativity and of getting your first you know book published and that mm-hmm. that feeling of of pride and just excitement and wanting to share it with people, that that early montage of scenes is a little strange to me. Not strange, but it, it diminishes really the effect of Harvey Picard's stories because it condenses all of these complex narratives into gag panels basically like it's just one moment that we're seeing like a scenario we're seeing the scene and we're seeing this line you know that kind of just epitomizes everything and that's that that reduces sort of the complexity of those actual stories i think that's the the restriction and or limitation of what cinema can actually do even though cinema can do so much yeah i think we we had this issue when i worked on hbo's bored to death with jonathan ames was a great show a great show and we we there most of the stuff I drew for the comic book artist uh, that was loosely based on me, we had to turn it basically into gag panels, even though there was one, uh, a page I did did draw and it didn't work on camera. Hmm. It just doesn't work. Interesting. It's really difficult. Unless you have a slow pan and you're cascading slowly, right. just in time for the reader to read the words and look yeah. at the image and get to the next panel. No, so I see what so you're forth. saying. that They were actually trying to film an actual comic book. Yes. Yeah. I think more what I'm getting to is that they actually filmed these as gag panels in a sense. Like they I just would show this quick moment and, you know, like he's taping up his coat. He's on the bus. Right. Uh, looking miserable. Right. He's looking in the mirror and, right. you know, the, those those were most of them were actual moments from longer stories right and but we're only seeing the gag panel moment both in the in the film itself and in the comic and again i just think it's chalk it up to the fact that there's a limitation to cinema being able to to show what comics can do which is what makes comics so great is that 
you know, it, it does what it does so well. Right. Sans cinema. And know? also, even those few seconds of live action do convey more information than a single panel in a comic does. Yes, because right. we're there's a three-dimensionality, there's a mm. temporal moment. Um, mm. So all of those come through, and that's more than one single panel in a comic can do. Right. Though, as the reader, we're filling in a lot of that information. Right. So I just wanted to do a little comparison of movie to comics mm -hmm. of where the various images and stuff that we we're seeing actually came from. Mm -hmm. So it's again, it's getting confusing with time a little bit because as where we left off time wise, it was 1975. Right. The first issue of American Splendor actually came out, um, comes out in 1976 and we're actually seeing images here from 1977 through 1985 mm. from actual comics. So mm. there was that line, another semi-bummer weekend, which is one of the first things in the montage, right. which actually was from American Splendor number nine, illustrated by Kevin Brown, came out in 1984. Mm -hmm. And there was a follow-up one called another semi-bummer weekend from American Splendor number 10, 1985, illustrated by Val Mayerick. And then there's that great line, poor dishwashing has always been my Achilles heel, which is actually from the cover of American Splendor number six. No, number, number 10. Number 10, sorry. And who did the art for that one? Does it? I say, believe that's Val Myrick. Val Myrick, yeah. I love that line, and I actually think about it a lot because I, I have actually very strong dishwashing skills. So yeah, me too. I always think of that as like one of my superpowers, in my fact, few superpowers. In fact, the, the, the marketing on, on the cover... Uh, besides the drawing and who's, who the artists are in the issue, is his third marriage to a sweetie from Delaware and how his substandard dishwashing strains their relationship. Exactly. That exactly. was the big plot point. So I've always uh, made sure that that was never an issue in my relationship. <laughs> and the line, I'm desperately lonely and horny as hell, when he's in the diner, which they have a shout out to Shay's diner in the background. If you look at it in reverse, you can see that they had it in the same place where he had the tete-a-tete -tete with Robert Crumb. It was actually from a story called Rip Off Chick from American Splendor Number no. 6, illustrated by Greg Budget from 1981, which is actually a really long story. It's really interesting. And I know that story was later adapted into radio or theater versions, mm -hmm. but they don't get into the contents of that story. So, so they're taking snippets from the actual comics. Yeah. Uh, half, half of the montage is that. The other half is, you know... Some of them are made up or I right. just couldn't find them. Like the, right. the uh, a little glue should get this coat through one more winter. I know that's in a Harvey Picard story. I remember it, right. but I have not been able to track it down. And the, and the, now there's a reliable disappointment when he's looking in the mirror is also one that I'm sure I read before and I can't, um, I was not able to track that one down. So but I was looking, I mean, before when we were doing a little research and we were wondering, well, why would they choose American Splendor number two to portray the first issue yeah. in the movie? But when you look at the cover for, for their actual first issue, yeah. I could see why. It's kind of boring. Yeah, it's just kind it's of just, this out of context just, weird thing, you know? Yeah. It's like the middle of, of a long conversation. Like a political conversation yeah, or something. Yeah, like it's Harvey sitting with two friends of his. One's named Freddie and the other guy's, what was his name? I can't remember his name. Uh, but he's the one who's talking. Mm -hmm. And 
his name's Sid. And those two guys are sort of semi-regular characters in the first couple of issues of American Splendor. I guess they were Harvey's friends at the time. And Mm -hmm. Sid is like an older guy who's very, you know, knowledgeable about geopolitics. And you almost get the sense that he's kind of like a mentor for Harvey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But none of that shows up in the movie. Um, And in the original American Splendor number one, which is called The Big Bicentennial Issue from Off the Streets of Cleveland... It's just the three of them sitting, you know, in front of the stoop of of a vegetarian restaurant, just sitting there hanging out. And Sid, the older guy, is talking about like the origins of World War One, I guess. Yep. And he says, and then the Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip say, am I boring you guys? And. Freddie looks bored and Harvey says, no, Sid, you're fascinating us. <laughs> you know, it's it's cute. And I can imagine like if you'd seen that, you'd never seen a comic like this. You're right. in your in your co-op or in your head, sh- head shop or used bookstore or whatever. And you see this there and you're that, you know, you you're, you tend towards that sensibility. Right. You'd be like, I'm going to pick this up. It's right. only a one dollar. But, but actually, I think two issue two works better. It's for, more compelling. Oh, it works better for the movie for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because it's literally a segue from a scene that we are watching, and, you know, going right into the cover. And I know you're fact checking, but one of the things that I don't think is ever explained in the movie, and this would be the time to do it, and I feel like I don't even know this answer right now, is why did he call his comic American Splendor? Like, wit, he, there's not a eureka moment yeah. or like an inspired moment in the movie where he goes, oh, I know what I'll call my comic, right. you know, American Splendor. And I've always maintained, and I, and I made this match while working on the Quitter, that American Splendor, the logo, looks somewhat like Action Comics. Yeah. Superman mm-hmm. We've mentioned comics. that we have before. Okay. But I think that now that I think about it, since the comic debuted at the American Bicentennial and everybody was going crazy about American history in 1976. Maybe that had something to do with it. And it was sort of like the antithesis to all this celebrating right. of America that was going on. Right, right. And it's obviously a couple calling, of schlubs couple on of a schlubs cover. on a, you know, Rust Belt city in Cleveland in 1976 is not what you think of as, as splendoriferous. Right. That's okay. not a word. <laughs> so just going back, finishing up our, our recap of, you know, comics versus movie. So yeah, they, they take the dialogue and the and not the image, but the dialogue from issue number two and stick it on number one when we see Harvey with his coworkers. And then they're kind of forced, I guess, to fake issue number two as well because they've already given it away. Because they're trying to show one. progression of like the, you know, he he did more. This is right. the beginning of of his, you know, career in comics. Yeah. And then later as they're winding things up, they have this montage of the covers four through seven and number three, which they actually use the covers. I still don't get why they go four, five, six, seven, and then back to number You're three. You're right, because when they go back to three, you think they're going to like you know expand on that cover or that moment, yeah. and then they just go into this uh, documentary of Harvey. The you know? only thing I can think of is because when they do have the documentary of Harvey in the background of that set, there's a big blow up of the issue number three behind him. Oh, maybe that's what's so, being said on the cover. Do you, can it was just a funny quote that's from the actual cover about like some guys talking about a date they had and whether they you know how far the guy got like did he get to oh, second okay. base or third base? He's like, no, nah, all I got was arm around, right? Which is yeah, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah. <laughs> but that must have been why that they did issue. They had this blow up of issue three mm. that was in that scene, and so mm. for editing purposes, they kind of had to do match. four, five, six, seven, three. Sure. 
And by the way, I think only we notice that. Like, I think in the movie, it's going by so Well, that's quickly. why we're watching the movie <laughs> a few minutes at anybody, a time. I don't think anybody's noticing uh, the numbers of the issues. I think they just see a progression I think of these, these minute-by-minute podcasts are the bane of the existence of, of film editors. Oh, because absolutely. Because they're like, man, why are any of, you're not supposed to notice any of this stuff. <laughs> um, so one, a couple other quick... So it was also interesting to me. It's very funny. The actual cover of American Splendor Number no. 1 has a little picture by Robert Crumb in the upper left-hand corner that says, don't be fooled, folks. All I have in this issue is a two-pager. And the other 40-something pages are by these other artists who up to this point in the movie, we have never heard of and never knew that Harvey had any connection to these artists. So it's Greg Budget, Gary Dumb, Brian Bram has a story in there too, and one little two-pager by Crumb. So clearly... Harvey had already put the feelers out, had met these artists, had arranged details with them, paid them whatever small rate that he was paying them to to illustrate his stories. And those guys are local Cleveland artists. Like you said, they worked with Harvey for a long time. But in the movie, it sort of is skipped over a little because they made this whole thing about Crumb basically creates Harvey. Right. But then in actuality, in real life, Harvey did it himself with these other artists who don't have any... I mean, their their national star or whatever was tied to Harvey's more than his was to them. Sure. So it's Although he was nobody at the time. But they're nobody also. They're all nobody. They're all nobody. The all only person that's somebody is Crumb. Yeah. And in a way, that's that was the marketing strategy of issue number one. Right. But then Crumb is trying to say, yeah, I only got two pages in here. Right. So, you know... Buy at your own risk, almost. It's very you know? funny. And yeah, like, how did he even come in on it? Because he didn't draw the cover. It's funny. Like, he's like, hey, can I draw? Can I add just a little thing up at so the top? So it's his artwork in it's that It's his corner. artwork. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and then one other thing I just wanted to quickly uh, just bond with you over is I love that scene where he's showing that first issue off to his coworkers. Because yeah. I, as self-publishers, we both went through this. Yes. We yes. both... We're, uh, on keyhole number one, I'm thinking of maybe you're thinking of earlier issues that you had published. Yeah, I had done the verdict with Martin Powell in 1987, okay, so, you... so I've, I've I, I had previous yeah uh, uh, births as it were. Yeah, that's totally you know? <laughs> that's a, it's that feeling of like sharing your baby yes. with the world and having that appropriate response, having other people be as excited. Well, it's about a really adorable moment, you... like. And Giamatti portrays it really well because yeah. it's a silent thing. It's he's mm-hmm. watching his he's watching other people read, judge, grab yeah. the comic. I, I want to see a buy minute. Mm-hmm. What what is this? Did you draw it? You wrote it all. Like what what's going on? And Giamatti portraying Harvey is just it's kind of this adorable little kind of like moment of vulnerability, you know, but also pride. There's yeah. a lot of pride in his face. It, you know? it really is. It's a great mixture of emotions, and it really does bring back to me. That, especially for Keyhole Number One, which I think came out in 1995. Sure. And even though well, we, we had done four mini comics, we had done some mini comics, yeah. which was its own birthing process. But obviously, the stakes are a lot lower. But for Keyhole Number One, we were being published by this very small publisher in Rhode Island called Millennium Publications. Yeah. And basically, we had to do all the production on it. And yeah. I was just learning Photoshop, just learning how to do all that. You stuff. You ruined the cover. I ruined the cover. <laughs> I did it too low of a resolution. <laughs> Um, it was your artwork, and I I did not know what I was doing. Revenge. Yeah, but number two revenge. came out really nicely, which I drew. Um, it's weird. Yeah. But I do remember We just... had to create an imprint because the publisher, Millennium, was mo- more known for like splatter porn and horror. Right. And, and then we're and like, well, we're not really doing that. Titles. And license titles. Yeah. We, we were doing more like 
you know, Harvey Picard kind of comics, right? Our version of Love and Rockets. Well, or Love and Rockets yeah. meets Eight Ball meets American Splendor, yes. you know, kind of thing. And then I do remember because we would call each other a lot and this is before the internet and email yeah and so the way we would approve our, our pages to each other is through a fax machine i would go right. <laughs> do my artwork you do your artwork and we yeah. would go and reduce it and get it xerox and yep. we fax each other the pages yeah and, and that, that was, was how it would get published but this time yeah. we were actually publishing we were it. actually probably getting distributed in comic book shops right and i do remember uh you got the box yes I didn't, you got the box i got the box one. i think a day before you did or? i don't know if i got a box if i got maybe it from you, maybe yeah but i remember I think you called me and I picked up the phone and before I could say hello, <laughs> I was just listening to you and I just heard like this, your breathing was heavy and like, it labored and like, and I was like, is he okay? What's going on? And you were basically going to tell me like what you felt about the first issue. Right. And I think you were just thrilled. And this is before we could identify that the cover was a little off, yeah. you know, yeah. but the, to hold that in your hands, yeah. you know, that had this gone. This thing you had worked so hard on. Not only had we both written and drawn our hearts out to right. try to make this debut with our names on the cover and all that, but right. to then also have gone through all the production rigmarole and right. dealing with the printer and the distributor. And the I remember the box came like there was some screw up with the postal service in Chicago in those days. That's where I was living. Huh, right. And I didn't get the box until the next day. And it was just, you know, I could not waiting. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. So then when it finally came in, yeah, there were so many complex feelings. And yeah. I then brought the issue into my coworkers at the dumb job that I was at sure. and had a very similar, you know, See kind it. of moment of of celebration. So I definitely that. identified with that. Absolutely. And I, and I also feel like for me, it feels real when you go to a store. And you see it. There. Yes. Yeah, that, yeah. That's a whole other level. Like, oh, my God. They, it's out like, there. Like, real people could buy know. this, you know? <laughs> Not just my family members and friends. All right. Well, I guess that's it. That wraps up this episode. Remember, you can visit us at SceneByScenePodcast.com and SceneByScene on Facebook, where you can subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, check out our work, including all things Harvey Picar, and join the discussion. So until next time, when we'll be discussing episode number 14, this is Josh Newfeld and Dean Haspiel with Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. Mm-hmm.